Hello, I'm Derek S. McGrath. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm recording this on Friday, August 4, 2023. And today, the newest chapter of Bungo Straight Dogs came out, that being chapter 109. I thought I would record a reaction to the chapter. This won't be a live reaction as I have finished reading the chapter, but as a trade-off, I hope it is a bit more thought out rather than just gut instinct reactions. There's also a transcript for today's reaction available at DerekSMcGrath.wordpress.com. And before I start, I will say that this reaction is not only based on what I read on the page of the manga, but also reactions I saw already from fans online. Therefore, I have cited those fan reactions and will refer to them elsewhere in this reaction as relevant. You can find links to those fan reactions in the description and in the transcript. Please read through them first before proceeding with this audio as they are the ones who got a lot of this figured out long before I had any idea what was happening in this chapter. There are also timestamps in the description. Let's begin this page-by-page -page reaction to chapter 109 of Bungo's Stray Dogs, titled In the Small Room Part 5. The series is written by Kafka Asagiri and illustrated by Sango Harukawa. English translation by Kevin Gifford. Lettering by Bianca Pistillo. Bungo Stray Dogs is available from Yen Press. You can find a list of vendors at yenpress.com. Let's start with the title of this chapter. I expect anyone who has heard me discuss Bungo Stray Dogs before is sick of me whining about the anime adaptation. Trust me, I'm sick of me whining about the anime adaptation too. But this is in the small room part 5. Just looking at how the anime has been adapting things, it has me concerned. I haven't done a complete list of chapter to episode ratios to see how many chapters each episode adapts. Lately in season 5, it has seemed to be between 2 to 4 chapters per episode. And sometimes that is based on whether the chapters constitute one or more parts. In other words, if something goes into part 2 or 3 or 4, we're at part 5 now for this arc. I can point to numerous spots in this now 5-part arc that can be a decent cliffhanger for an anime episode. And yet, I anticipate Studio Bones would rush so much to cram so many chapters into one episode. As I said in earlier audio commentaries, and as I'll probably keep saying due to obsessing with this metaphor, I want episodes of the anime to be like flipping through pages in a book, build anticipation as you turn the page. That works in a light novel, that works in a manga, but I don't get that same sense with an anime, because you're not flipping the page, the story is advancing as it will, with or without you. And with this now being part 5, I'm scared how Studio Bones will condense this, not only by cutting material and how those cuts affect the story, but also by rushing scenes instead of letting a moment sit for the audience to think through. I shouldn't have to pause to process a moment on screen. The episode itself should pace itself as such. In any case, that's my diatribe again about the anime, but we're here to discuss today's manga chapter, so let's get going. 
Beginning on page 1, Sigma is sweating and hesitating to take Theodore's hand. Theodore welcomes him to touch his hand to trade information. Put a pin in that because we're going to talk about this, about how when Sigma touches someone, they get the most important information that person has, but also the other person gets the most important information from Sigma. Sigma goes into this handshake knowing they may die. They say this may be their final decision. Given how long the panels are taking, I don't know how the anime will build this to anticipation, especially with how slow Sigma is moving and how insistent Theodore is. Theodore finally asks what Sigma will take from him. Sigma says all of Theodore's information. Theodore smirks, and again, this is where we have to talk about whether Sigma is smart, desperate, or foolish. Go back and listen to my audio commentary for the final episodes of Season 4 of the anime. Sigma in the manga at that point has shown to be crafty, if lacking in self-confidence. Whereas the anime just made Sigma lacking in self-confidence and not really showing the intelligence they were capable of so much earlier in the manga. That seems like an adaptation choice, maybe influenced by Asagiri, assuming Asagiri realized they made Sigma too competent and needed to have them screw up a few times to keep them interesting. And here we see that Sigma's desperation is in conflict with their smartness. Sigma's plan should be smart here. If this is Sigma's last chance, then of course they should get all info they can out of Theodore. But we also know Theodore's touch can kill, so how long will Sigma be alive to get this information to the agency, and how can they get to any communication device to get that information to the agency? Again, this doesn't work for me. In terms of because the plot says so, and because this is literature, fine, it's believable. But even when believable, that is when treating this all as fiction. Sigma has to lose consciousness here because the plot needs Sigma to. That doesn't fit the character, though. Sigma may not be at the level of Theodore, Dazai, Fukuchi, or even Teruko in planning, but they aren't this foolish. And one other thing about the foolishness, assuming it is an equivalent exchange between Theodore and Sigma, if Sigma gets all the information from Theodore, that means Theodore now gets all the information from Sigma. Maybe Sigma has little valuable information that can help Theodore, but still, Sigma has exposed everything they have. This is a gamble. Again, fitting for a casino manager. But it's a gamble that won't help if, to repeat myself, Sigma has no way to get that information to anyone else. In any case, now I'm going to rush and skip around. As soon as Sigma takes Theodore's hand, we cut to Aya and Bram Stoker. I'll get to the Aya and Bram stuff at the end of this discussion. Let's stick with Sigma and Theodore for a moment and skip to page 12. Sigma is getting overwhelmed by how much information they are getting out of Theodore, until Theodore towers over Sigma. Not a bad visual. I'm again hesitant to expect we'll get something as incredible when this gets adapted for the anime, but it again shows how desperation defeats smartness. Sigma really didn't expect that this much information from all of Theodore's secrets would overwhelm them, 
And in terms of storytelling, I don't think it treats the audience as being very smart. We're going to get to this when we discuss Chuya and Dazai, but there are smart readers who looked at this chapter and they all saw what I refused to analyze or figure out or just wasn't smart enough to see, that being a hint that Chuya didn't actually fire any bullet into Dazai's head. But we'll get to that. Sticking to just Theodore and Sigma here, why is there no reward for the audience? We see Fukuzawa bleeding out in this chapter, but we still think that he's not dead yet because Atushi still has full control over his ability. We get the hint Dazai isn't dead yet. We may even have a hint as to what One Order is really about. But what hint do we get here about any of Theodore's secrets? Why do we get hints elsewhere to keep the audience engaged in this mystery and trying to figure things out, but still get nothing to figure out anything about Theodore? Why do we get visual clues to let us know that Fukuzawa probably isn't dead, Dazai probably isn't dead, and what One Order really is, but nothing here to know any more of Theodore's secrets? I complain about this because the mystery has gotten stale. You keep Theodore in a locked cage practically the entire time we have seen him. First appearance? In some room. During the Moby Dick sinking? In some room. Captured by the Mafia? In a literal cage. Orchestrating both the dead apple attack and the cannibalism attack in Katsura's capture? Aside from stabbing Mori and getting Dazai shot in the alley? What other interactions has he had in public? He gets arrested, then immediately put into Merceau. Even during this prison duel, he has been inside a literal prison. The point I'm getting at is this. Even when Theodore interacts with others, almost every time it's in some prison, some cage, some closed room. We don't see more in his behavior to get what he is about. What visual clues are there to get some insight into any of his secrets beyond the fact that he holds Sigma in his hand and is a towering giant, hence a god figure. Is he god with a capital G? Or is this just symbolic of how small Sigma is? We do see Theodore's hand poking out of a circle of light like the sun, so more Abrahamic god imagery there. Is that really our only clue as to what Theodore is all about? If so... It's disappointingly vague. I hope when rereading Theodore's arc, whenever it ends, that all this in-chapter content is useful. And if I may go on a diatribe, if a manga requires you to look at content that isn't within the page itself, that's cheap. I know there are fans who analyze the manga volume's covers for clues, but I shouldn't have to buy a volume to get more clues. I know people reading My Hero Academia point to museum pieces Horikoshi has made, or artwork of Toga and Ochako and Izuku and Mirko and Aoyama that he has made that is supposed to foreshadow relationships and injuries and lost limbs and status as a traitor. But again, if it's not on the page, it's not really foreshadowing. It's feeding info to hardcore fans rather than letting a reader pick up any part of the work within that one series to get enough information to draw the same conclusion. And 
yes i'm saying that if this artwork was inside the chapter that would negate my complaints but enough of this diatribe let's wrap up the theodore and sigma part of this plot sigma is starting to pass out and i had to quote this part as translated by yen press sigma thinks i know what dostoevsky really is my god i had to tell the detective agency at once I may be reading too much into this, especially not reading in the original Japanese, but think about it. I know what Dostoevsky really is. My God. I get it, that's reading too much. But again, is Theodore God here? Or is that just a trick of the original text and the translation into English? What do you think? Let me know in the comments. In any case, Theodore's story ends in this chapter with him returning to the security cameras in order to witness Chuya killing Dazai. So, let's transition to that story, then the Fuguchi story, then end with the Aya and Bram story. On page 15, Dazai is still bleeding out of one broken leg when he calls to someone approaching. Dazai says he has long suspected something like this, only he thought he would be the one standing over Chuya to kill him. Chuya's eyes are still hazy. Dazai asks why he delays and doesn't just punch him. Chuya, upset, moves in to do so, then stops when Theodore calls through the security system, warning Chuya that Dazai's ability will cancel out Bram Stoker's vampiric possession of him. Dazai is annoyed, but still smiling that this happens. Then Dazai lets out an annoyed sigh when Chuya pulls a gun, but he stops acting sarcastic and actually seems really annoyed when Chuya shoots him in the shoulder. Notice the bullet makes an impact on the wall. Why bother showing that wall impact when the bullet and the blood from the shot and the sound effect of the gunshot should be sufficient? But pinning that, we'll get back to it. Dazai condemns Chuya for such a lousy shot and how much it hurt. Huh. If Dazai got shot and knew he was going to die like this, then why complain about the pain? Yes, Dazai has said he wants to die, and yes, he said he wanted to be painless, but it's almost like, as fans online figured out, Dazai planned all this. I get it, Dazai planning this far ahead is annoying. But there are two details that make this tolerable and makes Fyodor and Fukuchi being this far ahead annoying. First, Dazai is one of our ostensible good guys and we like him, so we want to see him succeed. And second, we're part of this mystery and we can see how this is working out for him on rereading so we are along with him on this plan. What is that plan? We'll get to that in a moment. Now Chuya holds the gun to Dazai's forehead, and yes, I know the fan theory that touching Dazai with the gun should activate Dazai's ability to negate Chuya's vampiricism. Whether that is a hint that Dazai got to him, I don't know. Anyway, Dazai goes back to being annoyed, no, I don't have confidence Studio Bones will pull off the humor here with Dazai looking at Chuya and sighing. Theodore smirks, saying Dazai has no other options. 
Dazai smiles back, saying he didn't expect things to end this badly, but maybe if he tries to appeal to Chuya's heart, he can get him to shake off the vampire curse. And there were fans who compared this to Atushi trying to get through to Vampire Akutsugawa last time, and we saw how that worked out, so again, I don't blame Masagiri here for at least having consistent foreshadowing where we see a scene repeat and know its outcome. Dazai says there is something else he and Shuya are fated for, but before he can finish, gunshots. We see the mark on Dazai's forehead, but not on the wall. Shuya fires two more times, and we see two more marks on the wall, so let's spoil that here. Fans think Chuya fired only a paintball round at Dazai's forehead. Yes, the fact that Dazai is still talking should indicate he is not dead, but this is also comic book logic. I'm actually willing to suspend disbelief that Dazai could keep talking even after taking a bullet to the head. Heck, if Theodore can fall for that, then I don't think it's a big problem for readers to fall for the idea that Dazai can keep talking after being shot in the head. But the marks on the wall not matching the bullet shots? That's suspicious and indicates to me that Dazai did not take a fatal shot to the head. Bleeding out from bullet wounds is still possible, but Dazai may not yet be dead from any shot to the head because he may not have been shot in the head. That does open the question as to how Dazai knew that was a paintball bullet while the other bullets are real, did Dazai lead that gun around for Chuya to find? In any case, Dazai says this is finally the end as he expected. Theodore says goodbye. And now we cut to Fukuchi opening One Order. Let's talk about One Order. What is the point of the three eyes on the One Order box? It can't be a Soul Eater reference to Ashura. Ashura's third eye and name were references to Buddhism with regard to unlocking the third eye and being a bellicose deity, but that is Soul Eater. This is Bungo Stray Dogs. Within this manga, what is the point of those three eyes here with one order? Let's assume this is Buddhism. How does Buddhism inform how we should read one order as a narrative object? What do the eyes symbolize? Buddhism influences the idea of the decay of the angel, each of the ways those politicians is killed being an aspect that with Buddhism. Is that a way to get into what one order can mean? I don't know, I'm at a loss. What do you think? Why did the manga give one order three eyes? It's pretty veiny and fleshy when activated, so is it a Lovecraftian necronomicon? Are the three eyes some literary reference? I can't think of any book or short story or poem that is famous enough for this to be a literary reference. Or is the bullet hole in Dazai's forehead supposed to now resemble the third eye? Let me know what your hypotheses or thoughts are in the comment section. Back to the manga, Fukuchi calls in to start using all militaries to launch nuclear weapons for global invasion. Also. This is definitely in poor taste releasing this chapter close to the anniversary of the nuclear bombings of Japan. What the heck? As this chapter ends, we see the war about to start. We see Fukuzawa bleeding out, Dazai dead, and Akutagawa holding outward a limb-removed Atsushi. But we also end with Aya. 
as much as I like Aya, this plot point is too silly. I think the point should be that Aya is taking quotidian options to solve major problems. Her solution is nothing big and impressive like a tiger boy battling a vampire, a samurai defeating a fascist, or a silly guy stopping his hat-wearing vampire partner. This is one person who is already marginalized by her age and gender, who is taking action with something common. It should be like reading Susan Claspell's play Trifles. Take what is found out in the ordinary and use it to get an answer, because no one else was noticing it, and especially not the men. While this should work, it falls apart if only because, as one person online pointed out, and I regret that I don't have their posts in front of me, Aya didn't tie up Bram Stoker to anything. You can't tie the sword just to the table and throw the table off the building. You need to tie Bram to something so that the force opposite to gravity keeps Bram in one spot. Maybe this can be excused if in the next chapter Aya realizes this mistake, runs over to grab Bram, and as fans are expecting, we finally see Aya's ability. There is no guarantee Aya has an ability. Rompo is named for an author, but doesn't have an ability. Higuchi and Cannon does, but it hasn't been named or shown yet. Tachihara hid his. Aya may not have an ability. But let's take a few guesses about what Aya's ability could be. Just keep in mind, I know nothing about the real-life Aya Koda, so I am basing this on limited resources. Namely, the Bungo Wiki and Wikipedia. Two of the real-life Aya Koda's works are titled My Father, or, if I'm getting this correct, also titled The Death of My Father, and Such an Affair. I'm not sure having her ability be called My Father would help, it's obvious his influence on her propels her into action, but having a girl's ability depend on her father, rather than her reshaping whatever she got from her father into her own ability, seems misplaced. Granted, if they went with the other title, The Death of My Father, that could also work, maybe a strength-enhancing ability that shows she has stepped outside of his shadow. Wikipedia refers to the real-life Koda's novel, Nagareru, as her most famous work. The title translates into Flowing, it was adapted for film in 1956. Would Flowing be the flow of gravity? Maybe she will have gravity control like Chuya, thereby fueling the speculation people have had that she's related to Chuya? Or why Chuya, for no good reason, appears in her OVA? Or is flowing the flow of time? Can she reverse the flow of time to use against Fukuchi? If Fukuchi gets beaten by Aya, that may be disappointing given the long line of people who want to get a crack at him, like this is the slapping scene in Airplane, or the recent fight in Chainsaw Man. But you had to acknowledge Fukuchi losing to a girl who has had to fight against restricted patriarchy is also fitting. What's the actual Nagareru story about? Again, I'm referring to Wikipedia as I'm sure on time and not reading the actual novel 
or more peer-reviewed sources about Coda's writing. In any case, the simplest way to describe the book's plot is that it is a story about a maid. Again, this seems reductive if Aya's ability is just to clean up the mess made by everything. It could work if you are expanding cleaning up to have multiple properties, but then you had to find a way to differentiate it from, say, Ogre's ability to clean up evidence to hide it away. But what about Koda's other stories? Flowers in the Grass? We already have Steinbeck's ability. Dolls for a Special Day? There are enough people who want to see her interact with Q from the Port Mafia, which could be amusing. The Black Kimono. Maybe it wasn't Akutsugawa who cut the, open the glass window, but Aya herself? But I'm rambling. Let's get back to Aya herself and her plot as it appears in the manga. I already hinted at some of what we see in this chapter. Bram Stoker first tells Aya that one order will burn the world. Aya refuses to give up, saying she'll get that sword pulled out of Bram. She slams into the window with no luck. Then she sees Akutsugawa, or again, maybe Aya herself earlier, cut a hole into the other window. I have seen fans suggest that Kutagawa did that on purpose to aid Aya. We'll see whether that turns out to be true. In any case, Aya says she'll push the table out and tie it to Bram, then knock the table off the tower. Bram says the table is too heavy, memories of her father tell her the table is too heavy, and then Aya manages to push it anyway. I don't know what to get out of this scene beyond what is obvious, that the men around Aya underestimate her. I'm not sure what to do with this, because patriarchy is so ingrained that just acknowledging it feels like the story not doing enough when maybe that is enough to keep reinforcing that men underestimate girls. Then again, I even got that wrong. I had said both Bram and her father say the table is too heavy, when really, it is Bram who said it was too heavy, and her father telling her how to do it. Again, please don't make Aya's ability her own father's words. I really hope she doesn't have some super strength ability that depends on remembering her father's lessons. And that's how our chapter ends, with something as common as a table used to pull the sword. We'll have to see next time whether that sword actually gets dislodged, or, as I fear, Bram wasn't secured to anything and is going off the building as well. In any case, I'll stop here. Thanks for listening to this reaction to the newest chapter of Bungo Stray Dogs. What did you think of this chapter? Are you as annoyed as I am how long this is dragging? Do you think the Aya stuff will pay off and give her an ability? She is a compelling character on her own, yet I fear that trying to find a complex way to address her relationship with her dad is going to just conclude that her dad was right all along when, no, he freaking wasn't. Do you think fans got him right about how Dazai will survive, or do you think he's dead? And do you think I'm too hard on Sigma, acting like they are being too foolish, rather than appreciating how much risk they are taking? This all feels a little too much like Shonen for a story that reinforces Sinine details about just not being able to succeed when the odds are against you. And what is up with the Buddhist three eyes on one order?
Let me know what you think in the comments. And did you enjoy this reaction to the newest chapter? Would you like more of these? I am debating a format change to the Bungo Stray Dogs episode audio commentaries to opt for more of a podcast structure. Would that appeal to you? Or would you like the audio commentaries left as they are? And would you like more of these reactions to chapters? I already do some reaction videos weekly on the Sunday morning manga live stream Sundays at 11am Eastern on Twitch and YouTube. But would you prefer more of these audio-only manga reactions just for monthly releases of Bungo Stray Dogs? Let me know in the comments. Thanks for listening, and special thanks to Alec Roach, Emily Lauer, and Alexis Duran. Until the next chapter comes out in October, I've been Derek S. McGrath. You have a good day. Bye.